Yes, I think this will be much more. I don't patent anything. I can. I just did. Okay. So you said. So can you say that again? What What is it that can exist in and, in and of, of itself? itself? That That does not require something else in order to exist. What mm-hmm. kind of thing could that mm-hmm. be? Sure. And I, you have put a very strong emphasis on consciousness, uh-huh. and I would take it that at least you're toying with the idea that consciousness is the kind of thing that uh, just in and of itself, it happens. Now, in fact, it may be related to all sorts of other things, but uh, it doesn't require them for its, for its being. So... And I would certainly agree that that is true of a conscious experience. But um, I, I think that there is a danger in using the noun consciousness. I think conscious needs to be an adjective describing something that is more extensive than itself. This is a point made by William James in his article, Does Consciousness Exist? And he thought, no, consciousness as such doesn't exist. It's <clears throat> you take an adjective and turn it into a noun, and th- this is nothing wrong with doing it as long as you know that's what you're doing. <clears throat> James and Whitehead think that experience is what consciousness, what consciousness qualifies. And so the word experience is the one that then becomes the answer to the question of what can exist in and of itself. Now, of course, in in another sense, if we're asking a different kind of question, nothing can exist in and of itself because an experience is always an experience of something. Whitehead's, probably his most original term is prehension. And an experience is a synthesis of prehensions. And a prehension is a subject-object relationship. But of course, there is no subject without the object and there is no object without the subject. It's not a dualism the uh, in the Western tradition, and, and to some extent in Indian thought too, but I, I I don't want to get off on that. Just stick to the Western tradition. It has been assumed that our that our relationship to anything external to ourselves is mediated by the sense organs, and secondly, the sense organ to which 98% of the attention is devoted is vision. If, if we really had blind philosophers who thought of the world as constituted by the data of hearing, philosophy would have been extremely different. Or taste, or, you know, touch might be a little bit like hearing, like sight, but not much. In any case, <clears throat> Whitehead and I think you and uh, James and others 
reject the notion that our own relationships to to other entities, the only relationship of one entity to another, is mediated by sense organs. The most uh, fundamental relationship in in our in a way looking at human experience, not that we think human experience is the only experience, but it's the one we know best, so we can examine that. And the most important datum or object of a of the current prehensions is the past experience. That is not mediated by sense organs or anything of the sort. So to understand what a prehension is, and prehensions are experience, <clears throat> you can try to concentrate attention on what happens in each moment in its relationship to its immediate past. And um, for the most part, the past participates in constituting the present uh, in, independently of choice on the part of the present. But nevertheless, choice can have some influence, decision in the present. <clears throat> so the prehension of the past by the present, and now we begin with the most obvious part of the past, the past experience, is largely a reenactment, but never completely so. So, uh, a co uh, the, the, this is what Whitehead calls a physical feeling, and the physical feeling is also a causal feeling. So, the mystery of cause in so much of you know, Hume and all that, and Kant and all that stuff, is solved by the say, we, we are experiencing the causal efficacy of the past in every moment, and the fact that that's not a sensory experience doesn't reduce its importance. In fact, it actually may heighten its importance. But what gets, um, what, what influences the present experience although it would include the conscious aspects of the previous experience, is still largely unconscious or non-conscious. So it's very important to see that experience is much, it's a much more inclusive term than conscious experience, without minimizing the desirability of there being a little conscious experience. It introduces all sorts of values, but simply metaphysically speaking, conscious experience is a late development in the evolutionary scheme, but rather than think that prior to its emergence, the world either didn't exist or it was totally different, it is not, doesn't seem to us plausible since we are very much aware of how, I mean, we can be reflectively aware of how emotions of the past, many of which we are not conscious of, you know, somebody can tell me, 
you sound angry. Oh, no, I'm not angry. <laughs> I'm not conscious of being angry, but I can become conscious of it. But it doesn't depend on my becoming conscious of it for it to have an effect in, in what I am now. So it's that, it's that kind of relationship. Now, once we have the notion of a past occasion of experience participating in the constitution of a new occasion of experience, we can then follow our now chiefly scientific knowledge, though it's not completely disconnected with our immediate, ex our immediate understanding. We can become partly conscious of it. And we can say, in addition to prehending the past experience, we are also prehending many brain events which are rather remote from consciousness most of the time. And those brain events are affecting, are <clears throat> prehending other events in the body so that what's happening in the hand and everywhere in the body is participating in constituting what is happening in the present. So prehension becomes the inclusive term for the way in which the present is affected by the past. Now the prehensions I've talked about so far are what Whitey calls physical prehensions. And uh, they are the causal feelings. But Whitehead believes that every occasion, of course, beginning, we can start with thinking of human experience, also has conceptual feelings. These are of potentials of what might be, and what might be may also be. I mean, but its, but it's status is not dependent upon whether it has what Whitehead calls ingression. So one may discuss potentials in abstraction from actual things, and one may discuss, uh, the term possibility is often a more natural one than potential, but <clears throat> Whitehead thinks pure potential is probably the best term. But in human experience, imagination plays a considerable role. Anticipation plays a considerable role. And conceptual feelings are very important. But I th think that conceptual feelings are also, also occur in what he calls vibratory phenomena, what physicists call waves. That the world does not consist of uh, a, a sequence of absolutely identical entities, but often a, uh, a vibration goes back and forth, why they call it reversion. <laughs> so conceptual feelings play a role even in very, very elementary entities. And in quite its more detailed analysis of how an occasion of experience comes into being, it's the integration of 
conceptual feelings with physical feelings. And it's when this reaches a certain point that consciousness becomes an that feelings become conscious. Okay. So, um, I think this is not profoundly different from what you were saying. It's just uh, in today's philosophy, in general, people think that they can account for everything in mechanistic reductionistic terms, except the knowing of it, you know. So they have a really deeply dualistic idea that there is the real world, the world of nature, the world of matter, and then, whoops, there's something else, okay. And Whitehead and James are very much opposed to that. They think we need to take evolution very seriously. And there may be little flashes of conscious experience in very elementary places, but that's pure speculation. It may be that conscious experience takes place only in creatures with nervous systems. That's not, I mean, these days we, we discover that uh, trees relate to each other in extremely, you understand, so maybe there's some conscious experience in there. It, it's just that metaphysically we can say they experience each other and, they are in, and that means they are influenced by each other and um, how, just what the nature of the event is. Uh, for Whitehead, emotion is extremely important. Indeed, he thinks emotion is that all energy, as measured by physicists, is emotion as experienced in the in the event. Uh, I, I haven't seen any scientist who sort of picks up on that. <laughs> well, and when he says emotion, I mean, does he mean emotion like? The emotion that we experience, I mean, that, that we just, the, like the word that we use yeah. as emotion, I mean that... Just as as we extend, he extends the notion of experience mm -hmm. way beyond conscious experience, mm -hmm. he extends the notion of emotion way yeah. beyond conscious. But emotion is a, um, it's, it's, it's the subjective... It, the way in which energy is described is actually in terms of the way B is affected by A. We're not told what energy is in itself. Right. That's a complete blank. Sure. But but Whitehead thinks that that you can extend the emotion. Uh, I, I let me back up a little bit. You can analyze any prehension into the subjective and objective aspects. So, uh, certainly in our conscious experience, we are aware of that there's an other that is impacting the, the present, and it is subjective, it is felt subjectively, and what Whitehead understands to be the subjective aspect is primarily emotion. 
it is felt. Um, the word feeling is sometimes used almost synonymously with emotion, and other times it is used almost synonymously with apprehension. Whitehead says it is the subjective aspect of the apprehension. Okay. And so when we say we are feeling the previous experience, what we feel is primarily it's emotion. Which is an effect of prehensions. It's a subjective form of its feelings of the past. So, oh, but right then, of course, the conceptual pole, conceptual feelings complicate this when you're actually analyzing complicated experiences like human ones. But again, even when you are analyzing light, uh, you have to take account both of the objective datum of each occasion and also of what it's like to be the new occasion, which is to be. So actual occasions, the vast majority of them are happenings of unconscious emotion. Objectively, of course, we can call them quarks and quanta and all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of things. But if you ask what they are, I mean, of course, Aristotle's material cause is what um, is being looked at, and he called it matter. And that's what physicists like to think of it as. But we have matter has, I mean, formed matter is, is what we see. And I think sight is primary already for Aristotle. Yeah. But when you try to imagine the matter without form, or abstracted from form, it, it's, it's blank. Now that is, uh, has, has been a very important part of meditation and reflection in the thought of India, and it entered into Western theology and philosophy largely through Thomas Aquinas, who instead of calling it matter, calls it being. As long as it is what is in the, apart from form, or what is formed, in individual things, I think it's the same topic. Of course, um, uh, I, I would say that most people in the West still have no notion of how important the realization that what we are is an instance of nothing, being itself, whatever, whatever term you want to use. So the, the entry into the Western 
tradition of that question came very late, whereas it was a question being reflected on in India 2,000 years earlier. Yeah. For Whitehead, and, uh, and uh, I would say maybe I'm more extreme about this than Whitehead was, but um, we need clearly to distinguish between being itself, since that's the term in Western philosophy, and God. If by God we mean anything remotely like the God of the Bible. Metaphysical ultimacy is not what the what the Hebrews were concerned about, and um, today, I mean, in recent times, Paul Tillich is the most famous one who wants to call us to the God beyond the God of the Bible. And it goes back to Meister Eckhart, who identified himself as superior to God when he understood himself as being being itself and God as having a form. So having a form is a kind of um, reduction in ultimacy. I like that. In that tradition. Mm -hmm. And ultimacy seems to be the supreme value. So, so I mean, it's it's wonderful what has been developed out of of that kind of thinking. But, um, and Whitey calls it creativity. So it's a very positive language. But it's uh, too bad to try to identify that with. A being that certainly has many formal qualities. And in Christianity, the, f the f most important formal quality in, I'd say in Jesus and in Paul, and I would say they are normative for Christianity, but obviously <laughs> don't control it, is love. And there's really no way to talk about love without introducing form. So I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that these two major streams of religious thought are complementary, but should not be confused with each other. Okay, that's more of a speech maybe than you wanted. <laughs> no, uh -huh. no, that's, it's, it's, it's good background. Um, and it, it does point me to some of the questions that um, I had for you initially when we talked about this at lunch, well, you know, a week or two ago, whenever that, whenever I first brought it up. Um, so, I, and just just to kind of restate, you know, my my position on yes, it yeah. is that, um, and I've kind of wrestled with that whole idea of, you know, where does being start and, and stop? I mean, well. Well, what is being, right? Um, as as have many philosophers, many many thinkers are you know talk yes, about. Yes. Of course, I mean it, it's 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 <clears throat> one of the the most important things that I think that we have to, to talk about. Do you tend to prefer being or nothingness as the topic? 
uh, another 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 very because I I'm not sure that you can have you can talk about really one without the other. Well, I think this, there are two ways of talking about the same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 I I tend to gravitate towards talking about being. You do. Okay. I do, but um, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I think it, it, it does make a difference. I think you're right. Being because... has a kind of positive note, mm-hmm. and nothingness is, of course, the via negativa is uh, based on the negative note. Or I, you know, both can be deeply spiritual. Sure. So, yeah. um, sometimes when I think of, of nothingness or that you know great metaphysical beyond, I I, I always mm-hmm. like the notion of the Cora. I've al- I've always liked that that idea that you know it's that all things re- emanate from and and recede into you know the the that kind of platonic uh-huh. core. Um, and as I, as I f- go along in my own personal philosophical journey, I find myself being more and more a Platonist um, for, uh-huh. for whatever uh-huh. reason, uh-huh. Um, uh, it, which which obviously aligns you know quite nicely dovetails quite nicely with Christianity and a lot of other things that we think of you know here in the West um, but uh, my my sort of take on all of this is that that being has to um, be supported by by something and I think what you're saying is is that you know in process um, being is supported by by other being, by by prehension, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that. Well, I don't like the word support. That I mean that image, being. If if we switch to Wagner's language, creativity is, the many becoming one. And uh, it's not supported by, the many or by the one. Creativity just happens. It, it's what's happening everywhere, all, 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 all the, the time. time. Right. That, I mean, that is the essence of process. I mean, of process, right? Yes. I and mean, that, that yeah. creativity happens. So, so that even God is an instance of creativity. Sure. And that God participates directly within <clears throat> all of that, which is the beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when people ask me, when I try and give my Robert Messley, like, okay. you know, summation of what process is, as I say, well, there's a big problem in theology that says God can't be ultimately, you know, can't be omniscient, can't be omnibenevolent, uh, and can't be omnipotent, um, you know, when there's evil in the world. Mm-hmm. And I say process theology kind of comes in and, and puts God both inside and outside of time, and and then you can have a God that maintains, you know, these these classical characteristics of, of what we think of, of it as, as being. Uh, and yet, you know, it still get, allows for all this human freedom with, with creativity because everything is always, again, literally in a process of, of becoming and, and creating itself. And um, through, through an actual movement of time, you know, things God, happen, reorder themselves yeah. based on... God is a causal factor in everything. Mm-hmm but not the only causal right. factor in anything. It allows its creation to participate <laughs> equal with its own being, mm-hmm. or nothingness, or whatever you might want to... Right. It, it, uh, how is... Is that an okay, very yeah. quick gloss over to somebody who has never heard of process theology or philosophy, you know? Was, um, 
That's my elevator pitch about okay. about process. <laughs> yeah, I think you could just say, it for for white and God is that factor in the world that makes for good. But of course, there are many other factors in the world. That's how you would summate or summarize process. Sometimes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've, 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 I don't think I've it ever depends asked you. On, depends on the issue. But, yeah. but when you talk about the problem of evil, there's a a, uh, a biblical verse, probably in Paul, which has been mistranslated as "all things work together for good." For those who love God, but is more accurately, I think. I mean, I'm not a linguist, so Understood. I can make can be that God works in all things for good. And I've always and that that's what what process thing. Okay, <clears throat> and I, I like that because I have always kind of thought about uh, or, or and and said that, you know, you can always, you know, when I'm trying to lift somebody's spirit up or, you know, that, um, that anything that, that bad things, um, can happen, of course, and, and, and that they do. Um, but, but not everything that, that happens can always generate something bad where anything that happens can always potentially generate something good. Hmm. It's it's maybe a cheesy little way of, but but I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, that that there that not everything you do will in, incur some negative, you know, mm-hmm. happening. But I think anything that we do, and I think we've seen that throughout history, from the Holocaust, from the greatest you know human horrors of all time, there's some good that that could eventually can eventually emerge from those things. Where where not anything and everything that we do has to inflict bad now that gets into a whole other conversation about values and what is good and what is bad but mm-hmm. I, you know again but, but uh, when what you're talking about is how to deal in concrete conversations there's certainly a place for right yeah, sure. exactly exactly mm-hmm. and, and that that's usually my my first go-to when someone is just destitute and you know, in despair, maybe might be first, but I always try and remind them that there's always something that, you know, it's that whole, you know, God closes a door, opens a window kind of thing, right? So, um, but, uh, but getting, getting back to kind of my, my original notion is that we have to, that being, I, I think being has to be supported by something, um, that and but that that makes it sound like the being is not ultimate. There has to be something more ultimate. Well, I think that there's something that has to work in Congress with. Oh, it. okay. In that case, you see, well, why the passage I like best mm-hmm. in Whitehead on that says <clears throat> there is no creativity without God and the world. Perfect. There is no God without creativity Perfect. for the world. There Perfect. is no world without God. So, in a sense, I would say all three are ultimate. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't prioritize one over the other. That's the way I like to do it. Okay. By non-prioritization. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, and like I said the <clears throat> other day when we were talking about this, um, just on Friday or whatever, that that 
I think that you and I are really actually saying very much the same thing, except that I don't have the, the language of process behind yeah. me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have my own dumb, so, dumbed down language, my Joey well, language. Well, that, you, you have a language that has worked for, for you. For me. Yes. It's my own, that's why it's my Joey. You, it's, you, you know. Yeah, no, no. To be your own philosopher has great advantages. But also usually limitations. (laughs) Yes, right? And it's not like I'm not schooled in any of this stuff. I mean, I have a PhD degree, you know, like I've got the education. Uh, Now, my mind is like a sieve in that it it forgets a lot. Um, But there's an advantage to that also. It's a very zen kind of existence where... I get to freshly approach things often, and but now as you were kind of giving me that overview on some things, you know, my whole process, uh, cla- education from Claremont came rushing back towards me, right? Oh, um, and because it's not like I've I've never dealt with process, you know, sure. you've made it very impossible for us PhD <laughs> folks to to not encounter a little bit of process, regardless of what we do in this town. So, um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I would say, you know, bef- I think where you were taking issue mm-hmm. and I wasn't explaining myself very well before was when, is when I said in kind of the, that, uh, that Berkeley, uh, that, that where, you know, you close your eyes and the world doesn't exist. It's not, not at all what I, what I'm uh-huh. saying is that uh-huh. more that being and consciousness are kind of the same thing, actually. They're almost the two sides of the same coin, really. Um, because you have to be... In order for something to be... Like, conscious has to be... Your consciousness, and I'm using it as as a noun here. I know. Okay. Uh, that, that's what I'm not liking. Right. And that's maybe... we Maybe this is where we can kind of... Uh, I don't know. Or maybe you can help me work through this. Uh, or I can... Mm-hmm. I, I doubt it, but change your mind. Or maybe... We'll, 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 we'll talk and see. But... Um, Consciousness has to be conscious of something, right? I mean, isn't that what consciousness well, experience is? Experience is always experience sure. of something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, and this is a consciousness, experience, being. It all, it all works. I, I think you could use really all of these words interchangeably, really, truly. Um, but I think, I think that if we are to use consciousness as a grand sort of happening, I think you could say, and again, this is a much more Eastern sort of view on consciousness. I, I think going back to, to the to the Indian tradition, the Hindu and the and, and even be beyond uh, that, um, is to say that consciousness is something that sort of metaphysically is out there and we as individuals pick it up sort of like an antenna, right? And then become, you know, plugged in or into and it's sort of like, you know, the Wi Fi, you know, roam, roaming around and we, you know, hook our computers up and then you know, it's not that the individual computer, you know, has the internet connection. It's that the internet connection is out there, and it's got the individual computer, much, uh, much in the same way I mean, that, you know, we we as individuals are conscious beings, but we're plugged into consciousness. And so, where I'm going to turn around and, and then and then further use consciousness as a noun is saying that consciousness has to be conscious of a thing. There has to be content to consciousness because if you're not if you are not conscious of something uh, th- then what is that i mean th- it's it's unconsciousness and unconsciousness is conscious of well precisely nothing it's not aware of anything there is no there is no being that it is looking at it has no content consciousness has to have a content and i think that but that content so, is being so, so does unconscious experience but unconscious experience 
And so maybe I need to ask you, uh, so our, like unconscious, like our, the beating of our heart, right? I mean, would you say that that's an unconscious experience? Uh, the wind in the trees outside, is that an unconscious? Like, Probably not, because I don't know where you're locating the feeling. And the feeling being what has been prehended previously. Yeah. I so, mean, our human experience is, is clearly something. Yes. A dog's experience is clearly something. I think an amoeba's experience is clearly something. Whether a tree has an experience or whether the experience is located only in the cells is an empirical question. Mm -hmm. Whitehead would certainly lean to thinking that the tree as a whole was a society of experiences but not an experience. But so what, couldn't you say the same thing or, what, or couldn't he say the same thing about a human being is that, that it has cellular experiences just as much as it has a whole body experience but what is it that links it all together? It's really this, this consciousness that comes more or less, we think, at least metaphysically or physically from our, from our brains, from yeah. our nervous system, from all, yeah. Yeah. you know. But the, they in turn have these, you know, cellular, you know, micro, microbe kind of yeah. experiences. But but at least in the human being, it does require a central nervous system. Yes, sure. To, pro to, to put all that together. To, to produce the mm -hmm. conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are other ways in which consciousness arises. Sure. That's a factual question. And it's... From my point of view, it's not a, it's not a metaphysical question. Right, yeah. right. And uh, for example... When you have a swarming of bees, and then they come to a collective decision, it looks like in that moment there emerges a conscious experience. But you understand, I'm, I, I don't want to take a step. <laughs> sure, no, yes, yes. I, I just mean, I, I'm fascinated by, by the question of when unified experiences occur. And the only example we know with, you know, if it's our own, yeah. but we think we are like each other, so that I'm assuming you are like I am. And dogs certainly behave as if they had that, you know, yeah. up to a certain point, uh -huh. yeah. I don't worry about it. I'm sure they exist. But when you get to plants, you might be able to explain it all from the cellular level. Mm -hmm. But maybe, I mean, they certainly also have a certain unity maybe there's sure. something more than that there sure so I'm not, I wouldn't oppose your saying so but um, I think what what were your example the wind the wind in the trees so like but or, the, or the maybe wind in the trees is you'd have to describe exactly what you mean well so, but, but it might require there being someone who was conscious of it in order to talk about the wind in the trees but maybe you are talking only about what's happening in a lot of molecules. No. Uh, well, yeah, yes and no. But so this gets mm -hmm. us closer to, I think, the, the question or the answer, which is, <laughs> which is often in these kinds of discussions the same thing. Um, so remember the other day we kind of talked about um, the Zen Cohen of the tree falling in the forest. You know, if no one's around to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. So, what I'm wondering is, leaving all aside our misgivings about, or our, our suspicions about, um, you know, the, the model 
um, that mo- modern science has put forward about there being a you know, singularity and then from that singularity a couple billion years a bunch of matter then you have the universe um, at the beginning of that um, you would call that stuff because there and there you know I'm talking about the very beginning there's no conscious anything right there's no there are no beings individuals who are conscious to perceive you know the the events that are taking place in that those early stages of the universe um, and yet clearly something has evolved out of it clearly there is a universe with 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 being and, and events within it um, but what was it at the beginning that that was there to to perceive that? No, um, no problem. I mean, if you, that's what I'm asking is is, is, are, are, is is that an unconscious experience that can just exist on its own? And you're saying yes, of course, yeah. But uh, I'm saying from a from a mm-hmm. point of view. Uh, whatever was there consisted of things that felt. If they were electron, I mean, yeah, they had I don't know enough yeah. enough science to say. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, no one really says nothing was there. There was no, of course, there was clearly something. There. Something there, yeah. yeah, clearly. So whatever it was, there were feeling entities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for Whitehead. But the likelihood that there was a conscious experience. Now, for me, the question of God, I'm, I'm just saying for me, we don't bring God in to show that there isn't anything without God. <laughs> God, is, God is experiencing everything that happens. Right. And without God's role, which for white for Whitehead has to do chiefly with potentials. Now, was just uh, sorry, just really quickly. Was was Whitehead an atheist? No. Okay. No, he believed in God. Okay. Not, not okay. being thoroughly Whiteheadian, what I'm saying about God. okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I know how far you've taken process theology. Uh huh. Um, and so I so I just didn't know if you were talking as as his mouthpiece or 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 you know with your own work. Yeah. Or, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, um, it's always... A bit of both. I mean, Whitehead didn't know anything about the Big Bang. And so, sure, sure, right. So yeah. I can't... Uh, yeah, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but the, the tendency, I mean, the implication of Whitehead is generally that there was no beginning. Mm-hmm. There's the beginning of our cosmic epoch could be talked about, successions of cosmic epochs. And um, God, you see, the, the primordial nature of God is God's uh, ordered experience of all potentialities. The consequent nature of God is God's experience of all actualities. So, it is the case that without God, there couldn't be anything. In that sense, God, you can say God grounds it. 
Sure. And I, just as creativity grounds it. Right. And it grounds itself. And, it, and I've tried to stay uh, away from that term of God being the ground of being just because I want to, you know, not have to always revert to, you know, yeah. phrase, phraseology that's been used in the past. And ground of being for Tillich is the same as being itself. It's not that not really a ground of being itself. Because because what because right there is no ground without the being. Anyways, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what about what about God as consciousness? As conscious, yes, but not consciousness. Consciousness is an abstraction. Because conscious, because being conscious is an experience. Some experiences are characterized by consciousness, others are not. That means there is an ingression of a pure potential into those experiences. Uh, When I hear the term consciousness, it so often sounds substantial that there's matter in the material world and then there is something else, consciousness and consciousness does not require that there be any entity that is conscious well then it's a, it's a pure potential and God is not a pure potential. It's the, he's the actual. It's it's the actualization. It's the actualization. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, and again, I'm not sure. I'm not. Not that I'm not. I, I don't. I don't see a possibility for any of those things to exist independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would think that God had to be, you know, has to be conscious. Um, it has to be conscious of something because consciousness has something that is conscious mm-hmm. is conscious. Of something, right? You see, a prehension. Any prehension has to be prehension of something. Sure. Either something actual or something potential. Sure. So, so because if God consists of of prehensions just as much as any other actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and this is where, I mean, I, to say it ad nauseum, I, I believe that we are are saying the exact same thing you know just just in, in different ways because my my contention is and i'm i'm not going so far as to to say this and and what i'm working on right now is i i want to talk about all this without using the word god so my difficulty is um that you know the the notion that i put forth and 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 what i'm i'm working on is that we as human beings uh, you know, from the greatest theologians on down, just we don't know enough about God to really be talking about it. The word itself has been so conceptualized, it's been so poisoned and polluted that we need to just get rid of it. Let's just forget about. Let's just forget. Let's just put it on the side mm-hmm. for, for right now. Let's forget about that word. Let's talk about what is real. And then work backwards from that. Let's not start with some abstracted notion of what a quote-unquote God is, and then from there, you know, Walakazam being and and the world, right? 
um, is that we need to talk about, you know, what is veritably true, move from there. Um, so I, I have a, a diff, the difficulty that I have is I don't want to say, listen, God clearly created all this because you can't have, you can't have being, you can't have all these things without, without God. And I don't, I'm not trying to be like cosmological about it. I'm not trying to do the, you know, go, go causal about it. Um, but, but I, I want to say all these things. I want to say that, again, there's consciousness that, that God is the ultimate being, is the ultimate reality, is the actuality of the world, of the universe, or whatever. And not even the universe. He's just the, it is the actuality. That has to give rise to, to being, or the, the, the two compose one another. And there is a consciousness that is formed you know, in that happening, in, in that interplay. Um, and so being in consciousness, same thing, you know, potato, potato, um, because there has to be a, a level of consciousness, of awareness about the wind in the trees or, you know, the beating of your heart or on a cellular level. Something has to be aware. Something has to perceive that. Something has to house that being on the, on the theater on the stage of, of 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 phenomena, or 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 being is the phenomena for which all these excuse me being is the stage for which um, all of these things play out, and the and the, and then we have the the phenomenology of. Um, see, we have to be aware, or something is aware, because that's the being is the content of of the the grand consciousness that is God. So really, be, being is. Being is God. God is being, um, and 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 all are conscious, given the interplay. And, and again, that's not even it's not even accurate to say that, you know, one interplays with with the rest. And I'm not trying to sound like a pantheist, but I guess it kind of boils down to that because I don't think you can have anything without an element of actuality. Without, I mean, it is real. Something, regardless of even if it's potential. There's still a reality in its potential in its potentiality because we've conceived it as a potential, and that potential is real. So everything I think has a certain degree of reality, a certain degree of verity. I've substituted God for verity, or verity for for God, and um, what I'm working on just to get people's minds clear of again this poisoned word of God. And and you can't have anything, you can't have being without a, something that is. Aware is something that actualizes it, and that actualization to to actualize it, something has to be aware of it. Something has to support it, whether it's another event, whether it's a, a human being's thoughts, whether it's whatever it might be. It, it, something has to create it. Something has to give it life, and vice versa. And then it then there's this double reflection all the way down. We've talked about turtles all the way across you know the other day <laughs> which I, I thought about these last last two or three days and I kind of like so does that make uh, it, it, I don't agree but that doesn't I mean that's not the issue yeah. well it is well it is what it is for me and, and this is uh -huh. where I wanted your uh -huh. yeah your 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 input well it's just uh, almost every word you use I'd have to stop and say I'm not quite sure Underst I know what you mean by understood. Yes. So yeah, I'm playing fast and loose that, with that a that lot of that not, stuff. That it's not a disagreement, but simply that um, 
that what you say doesn't have any uh, clarity for me. Understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I can absolutely see how coming from uh, coming from an outsider's standpoint um, that, that that could be that could be the case. Um, you see, when you have a strong emphasis on the need of perceiver. The way that has generally worked in the West, uh, when you talk about wind in the trees, mm-hmm. okay, if your if what you mean by the wind in the trees includes sounds, colors, textures, anything like that, then of course there has to be a perceived. Sure. Yeah. So the distinction between, I mean, there can be no appearance except for a perceiver. (laughs) Right. And so we know that those things don't exist independently. So for Whitehead, the big question is, what does exist? To go from the fact that um, colors and sounds and textures and all those things cannot exist except when there is a perceiver and the sound of the tree in the forest mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. To the idea that existence as such cannot be apart from a perceiver is, I think, the a, a step. I'm not sure you make it, I'm, you know, because I'm, I'm not clear, clear enough about what you are saying. But for a Whiteheadian, the issue of of what can there be going on in that region of space over there where I see a box that is independent of my seeing a box. And uh, science has a good deal to say about that. But then science tends to limit its explanatory words to what can be given in sense experience. And this is why causality is a total mystery in science, because there are causal feelings, but they're not sensory feelings. So why do you think causality is affecting what's going on over there all the time? That doesn't depend on my seeing it. This is, I mean, William James called it radical empiricism. So it's not a rejection of the empirical approach, but it's saying that we have lots of experience that is not mediated by the sense organs and this dogma, which affects so much of mo- of modern philosophy, just creates problems that are caused by assumptions for which there is no justification. <laughs> but this is really a philosophical approach that um, very difficult to find antecedents for anywhere in the West. I think um, 
Indian and Chinese philosophy have not been so set on the sensory organs of the body so that often the, there can be more uh, a closer connection uh, it's to, for, for us Whiteheadians it's just as important to be naturalists and to justify the scientific enterprise and assert that what is being talked about is not non-existent as it is to say that the way it's talked about by the scientists does <laughs> create enormous philosophical problems and but this is why Whitehead is so important for me it's it's not that he's just one philosopher among others. Now, he is one philosopher among others in the sense that there is a broader movement of radical empiricism. I think he is by far the most rigorous and detailed and works out more of the problems than any of the other radical empiricists. One way I put it, you probably heard me say this before, is that when in the science arose in a time of radical dualism and that was actually encouraged by the scientific worldview. I mean, Descartes was wanting to make it clear that science and technology were not dealing with anything that had any feelings. The denial of feeling to the physical world was central to Cartesian thought. Denying it even to animals. I mean, no, I can't. I just think it's one of the absurdities. I don't think anybody ever believed it, but we have built a science and technology and a food system sure. and all Heard that on the basis of the assumption that nature doesn't feel. And... Um, <clears throat> became extremely problematic since we couldn't draw a line and say that above this line the things are entirely different from below the line and so we had to make a decision we collectively as a culture do we develop a different view of nature as well as of human beings, or do we just adapt the view of human beings to the scientific worldview we already have? Now, from my point of view, the first, the first alternative was the sensible alternative, and radical empiricism enabled us to do that. But that was rejected by the academic disciplines, which wanted to study everything with the same methodology it had been studying and so the, it, I think that the decision to stay with radical empiricism is religious, existential, social, cultural, political <laughs> you name it I also think it's sensible <laughs> <laughs> But if you really do that, then you have to say 
characteristics of human experience that we had thought were unique to us are in fact continuous with with everything else. And of course, number one, we say everything, every actual entity is experiential in character. And it has, just as our experience is an experience of a given world in which our own past experience plays a primary role, and that's where continuity of things emerges, that's true of a great many other things. So, if you bring in consciousness, that is one of the things you cannot generalize. I mean, you can say it, but it isn't convincing to me to think that electronic occasions are conscious. So that's why I'm, I react yeah, sure, no, uh, no. negatively. Uh, other alternatives, of course, philosophically are to go in an idealist direction, and you may be more inclined to that. <clears throat> and where would I? Where well, would you, I you mentioned being Platonic. Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, in Plato, the the issue of of what the natural world is apart from human beings is not really a major topic. And the the world that he talks about is is the world of pure potentials <laughs> in Whitehead's sure. term. Yeah. Because Whitehead considers himself a Platonist. Really? Wait, he says Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. So that means he's putting himself in a very broad camp. And of course, he is constantly, repeatedly called a Platonist because he talks about eternal objects, and his eternal objects are very much the same as Plato's ideas. It's uh, just that he also puts a great deal of emphasis upon physical feelings, and even they have to be under, eternal objects are being actualized uh, in physical feelings as well. But the, you, you, you have a more equality between actual entities and pure potentials. In, in Plato, the pure potentials are used as explanatory factors. And... Um, I'm not sure that really the what Whitehead calls actual entities play that in, that kind of an important role. So I think I think there is a real difference. I mean, for Whitehead, the rethinking of the natural world in light of the fact that human beings are part of the natural world is foundational. And um, it, certainly aspects of Plato's thought are very important in order to help do that, but he's not, a, he's not an idealist. Mm. <clears throat> uh, so, most people with a strong scientific bent would say, oh, he's an idealist, because he thinks the forms of the pure potentials 
are essential to understanding anything. Because they come from that potentiality, then actualize, then reform, and then actualize. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's it's the the role of the of the conceptual feelings that introduces purpose and uh, meaning and all sorts of things mm -hmm. which get excluded from the world of science. Mm -hmm. When you won't rethink science, then you end up with just the same opposition to thinking that there is any feeling in the world. <clears throat> and provided the world is feeling. <laughs> so it's a fairly drastic uh, change from the Cartesian world and from the Kantian world as well. And then, so, what feels, what what prehends the feeling? I mean, events? I mean, or, or, or do, do the prehensions... Prehensions prehend other prehend prehensions. Prehensions, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And that, that, to me, makes perfect sense and is in mm -hmm. precise alignment with, with where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, so... Can I ask you what was when I was talking? And I mean, I, I know that I I do play fast and loose with a lot of terminology that would other, and, and that's perfectly okay. Yeah, no, you I, don't have to yeah. explain everything in a well, way that makes sense to people who look at things differently. Sure, <laughs> but I would love to try and 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 you um, you're not a real good guinea pig for this because you know because your 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 knowledge is so expansive on this. Uh, or maybe you're the best guinea pig I could... But I've never talked about this, really, with anybody. Mm -hmm. You're the first person I've really... Uh, a Anthony and I had talked to... Yes. You know, and, 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 Sha and Schauke and I had, had talked. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so in the years that they've been gone, I've, I've spoken about this, you know, precisely with no one except for yourself. So, uh, uh, can, I, can I ask you, um, a bit selfishly, how, how, could I, how could I better explain this to people, do you think? Or, or what questions do you have? What didn't I satisfy so far as um well you you keep putting in the idea that um nothing ex you seem to keep putting in that that nothing exists without being consciously prehended in my language yeah and and, and um i think that's an unfortunate doctrine and I think that, I mean, then I think you are going to end up with a dualism that that I'm not trying to ultimately yeah, yeah get to mm -hmm. uh, at, at all. Um, but I, I, what I'm trying to say is that consciousness mm -hmm. is almost like, and I, I know you're, you're not going to like, the, it's a field. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know what the basis of, of saying that. I would say potentiality is a field, in, in a sense. Uh, but um, hard to talk about fields because it gets so oh, it's very tricky. Yeah, language, it gets very. I'm, I'm not objecting to it. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I again, I'm just trying to put it in a light because because <clears throat> it's not a field. It, it's something that happens. I think through an organic kind of culmination okay. of various things. Consciousness arises, in okay. my view, yes, yeah. through a combination of many factors, mm -hmm. and it enriches the world, but it does not play a role. I think the divine, 
the divine experience plays a role in absolutely everything. And I do think the divine experience is conscious. And that's where I'm trying to go, right? And without using words like God, divine, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and you can do that. You can just swap out any word you want, which is, which is easy enough to do. And I've done that with, with the word verity. Verity and, you know. Um, um, and I, don't, I certainly don't want to you know, move towards a dualism. Um, uh, with this, but I do want to, um, I, I mean, at least, at least at this point, I, I, I believe that I, I want to, um, show that, that you can't have a thing unless something does prehend it. And that prehension doesn't have to be consciousness as a noun. Uh-huh. It just has to be prehended by, well, anything. Because that, because because within yeah. that, because the prehension has a, an amount of conscious an awareness, or or it is it's a, it's a prehension that is prehended by prehensions, <laughs> right? Uh, and my question is, doesn't it doesn't a thing something need to be before it is prehended? And I think the only thing that can be uh, is a prehension. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, and I, yes, I get that. But at the so, same, so I think the prehension exists and is prehended at what the same time. time. Well, there is the moment is this whole... of its coming into being, and then the moment of its acting upon the future. And I was just going to say, now that now we're starting to linger into this whole topic of what is time, right? And does time really exist? I would say that it certainly does not exist in the way that we experience it. Um, again, that slightly... might that might be a real difference. For why did time is an abstraction from process? In what way? Can you talk to me about that? Oh, well, the, I mean, again, time is a little bit like consciousness. Okay, it's not the sort of thing that can exist, but there are events take place in succession. And cause time. And and we can look at that and impose upon it an idea of time. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And we do, and it's it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And temporal sequence is actual, whether we think of time or impose time or anything. In other words, one there are some things that are causally effective in the present and they constitute the past. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that will be causally affected by what's happening now, and that constitutes the future. And there are some things that are neither causally caused by what is happening nor received. That's creativity, right? No, that's, an element that's, that's the present. Oh, that's the present. And the present is not limited to a single moment. Sure. I mean, on a distant star, it may extend a few thousand years. <laughs> right, right, right. Or so. But, but the element <clears throat> of creativity is, is there. You know, the, 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 the fact that things happen successively mm-hmm. and that causality is a one-way mm-hmm. street makes time very real. Yeah. And I mean, and time has to be in some ways central to process thought oh, sure. because, well, it's a process, right? <laughs> so, but, so process is metaphysically yes. prior. Okay. prior. 
uh-huh. to time. Gotcha. Dude, that is, Heidegger tends to be very much influenced by science, so he, he uses time to mean what the physicist writes as a T. Okay. And that's it's a what factor he, in the equation. And, yeah. that, and that's what he says is that the abstraction from the process. Okay. <clears throat> time, it's... Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think that what I'm, where I'm going is more using consciousness as a C in the equation. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Um, because, w- once again, it, you just, you can't have... Being, being, there has to be something that that prehends. But it doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't have to be. It, you're right, but and I, and this is where I'm using conscious or consciousness <clears throat> too loosely, probably. It, it, of course, if, yeah. if you redefine consciousness to mean all experience, yes, then it's that ceases to be a difference. Yes, but. I think that's you really have to play a game in order to get people right to understand, to understand that. that. Yeah. And I'm not and I'm not sure that I want to spend a lot of energy on that game. I I, I wouldn't recommend. Yeah. It. Yeah. Um I there are ways you could do it, I guess, but but yeah, because uh, uh, here is where I'm saying, yeah, all of experience comes together and you know, there is a there's a conscious happening there that that everything prehends everything else. And, and that's where, that's where, you know, that's what, if we're stepping outside of this and saying, well, this is being, and this, but this is where being, again, the, these, these words are not, are not accurate to describe what we're, yeah. you know, and they never are. Um, but, but something has to be the content of consciousness or of prehensions. So prehensions have prehension to. Prehension has to have. Content, either, right? Which Either is a, a potential or, or an, an actual, actual datum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why mm-hmm. did again? These are not matters where I'm pushing Whitehead's use no, of I terms. No, I understand. Yeah. You never. But Whitehead considers the potentials to be real, but not actual. Okay. Yeah. They're real, and they can be actualized. They sure. are potentials for sure. actualization. Because, because, and this is I, I said <laughs> before, maybe, maybe, but, but, you know, metaphysically, you have a thought, and it might not be actual, but it's real. It exists. Yeah. Well, when you somewhere, when you actually have a thought, you have actualized. I mean, okay, I mean, thinking something is already to is already an actual. But, but what you thought might not have been actual. Actual until you thought it. Okay, there you go. Right, yeah. so it arises at the same time. So I wonder if, like, are things you know in those ideal forms? Those are things that Whitehead would say are are, are realities that have not been actualized yet. What the ideal forms? Like the Platonic forms, Platonic kind of form. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are virtually. I'm. I mean, I'm always worried about the word infinite. I don't know. Right, but. Let me just say, an yeah. infinite number of, Again, words of pure potentials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the term ideal he avoids because in Plato there is a I- kind of ideal form of a chair. Mm-hmm. And Whitey thinks there are as many eternal objects uh, that 
we call chairs. I mean, when they actualize, we call them chairs. And the, there isn't one that is normative. So for, for Plato, ideas and ideals were very, very closely related. And there is mainly, I mean, he, he's, he, for Whitehead, whatever is possible is equally an eternal object. Being an eternal object is not an honor of some special sort. Okay. <laughs> so it, it's a different doctrine from yeah. Plato's. Yeah. I I had picked up earlier from you a more uh, Indian mm -hmm. way of thinking, and I, I was sort of a little surprised when you more recently have been talking that that didn't play a larger role. I think it does <coughs> still. I mean, da yeah. Taoist and Hinduism are you know. I mean, yes. less on Hinduism, but 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 all of that Eastern thought is yes. is a huge of huge importance to uh -huh. me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think of myself as steeped in that tradition as you in, in Whiteheadian and process mm -hmm. thought. Um, and to to go. And I think it's a nice project to try and blend East and West together into something yes. that both can sort of, especially in the, yeah. just being that the world is so small nowadays, <laughs> right? I think it's a yeah. kind of a nice project to to give each their their yeah. piece. And I think the advantage of a Whiteheadian way of doing that is that it takes full account of the scientific understanding of the world, mm -hmm. which obviously did not exist at the time. Right. The, the Chinese and Indians were talking and thinking. And so a, a philosophy that does... I mean, I think um, the Chinese, just historically, a hundred years ago, thought they had to suppress Chinese philosophy in order to adopt Enlightenment philosophy. Well... Because that was politically and socially beneficial to a lot of people, even, correct? Even right. militarily. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If they did not want to have their land nibbled uh -huh, away uh -huh. by colonial right. yeah, powers, right, right, right. they had to build a, a modern Western-type mm -hmm. army, mm -hmm. you know, etc. Yeah. So I'm not uh, disputing it, but it was very unfortunate for them to to that they had to identify with 17th century models of nature. And I think one of the positive roles that Whitehead's thought has brought in Chinese recognize its congeniality with a lot of Confucius and now. You know, and all that, and which is why it's uh, it's so on the upswing there that you you and but, it, Philip but then have... it's congenial, you see, with what up until a year or two ago was still being suppressed and opposed by the government. Hmm. But uh, when it's possible to show that you can have those insights about nature and humanity and how we are integrated into it and be at the same time a fully scientific philosophy, 
I think that has helped to re to make classical Chinese respectable again in China. I in the hope so. Well, I, I think you you've mentioned that um, obviously you, you've seen some changes there in 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 your visits and well, talking to well, people. Well, I mean specifically. I mean, there is no question, but that the government has adopted a different attitude yeah. toward classical Chinese in the last two or three years. My claim that maybe we helped is, <laughs> is, is, is my claim. Yes, yes, yes. But I think I'm sure there was more than a little bit of a butterfly effect I so think far there as is a, yeah. some effect. It's yeah. not. Uh, yeah, well, sure. Yeah. There were a number of interpreters of what was going on in China who said there are. Two movements of that are important, and one of them is process thought, and one of them is the recovery of Chinese classics. I said, "Well, I think the two movements can be one." I mean, yeah, yeah. And I want to pay homage to, uh -huh. and why I'm interested in. I mean, I'm all, I'm always interested in your opinion, <laughs> as as you know. But um, I think that the way of the world is becoming so scientific, and that process thought can. I think from just what I what I understand is the process thought is often the most scientific or it, it, it dovetails uh, most readily with with so much of our modern science. In, in, in my opinion, if scientists would only be interested in the facts that science uncovers and did not have a deep, maybe unconscious, I don't know how to how to put it, they had been so deeply socialized into Newtonian, but I think even more Cartesian mm -hmm. uh, understanding of nature, that now they they can't really deal well with quantum. Right, right. They have no but idea they just treat it as an anomaly, and you've got to be very careful if you're a quantum theorist not to formulate a theory that... Uh, grates against mm -hmm. traditional materialism, you know, right. even right. though it yeah. has to be in tension with yeah. it. And all this stuff that is coming out in, bio in biology about plants, it shows that they are so much, they are feeling-filled entities. Conscious-filled? No, not, I don't think so. And I, and I think you do damage yes, to no, yourself yeah. if you want to be heard. If you rush into talking about consciousness, no, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think I would. I would use it. I mean, you see. I mean, I just say I have no idea how complicated experience has to be. Right, in order for it to be Before, something we recognize and, as conscious. And there may be uh, moments of consciousness in all kinds of places that. But I'm right. not. I'm. I'm not going to invest in that. In that view, yeah. we yeah. don't have enough evidence. No, to say. and I would not rush to say. You know, every, yeah. everything's conscious. You know, yeah. in a way, I think uh, Euclid said. Uh, you I know, think it's amazing. You say that, everything feels. Okay. Uh, I, I think. I think Euclid said it's amazing that everything is intelligent. Intelligent or intelligible. Intelligent. I intelligent. Believe I, believe, I believe... Everything is intelligent. I, I, I believe And did his, he mean by that that tables and chairs are intelligent? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, and, and maybe... I, I had... There was a Zen calendar that I used to have, mm. right? Zen a, Zen a day calendar. And it was one of the, one of the ones that I, I saved. And I, 
I hung up, I hung it up on my wall, and uh, I had a, I have a whole uh, sort of a collage of these mm-hmm. of these quotes. Um, and uh, uh, that was one of it. So it's, he said, "It's it's ama- it's amazing. Everything is intelligent." I, I think he was more sp- speaking about the natural world. I just uh, assuming, uh-huh. just given the time that he lived in, and and, and again, this is what something. This is what I want to also pay homage to is is those prime primordial those original those ancient which is which is why i don't think it's a mystery to me or it's a it's no coincidence that i love the the indian traditions and and you know and the taoist you know these are two of the oldest surviving religions that we have today Mm -hmm. i want to i want to to sort of bring the most radically modern philosophy that we have and the most ancient mm-hmm. that we have that though because there's something about the those original experiences of humankind that i think can be very informative well, to us the aboriginal people not only have um, beliefs you know animistic thinking which has much more truth to it than than modern thinkers have allowed but they actually uh, have cultivated certain connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, with the white Indian, the question of what can be prehended sufficiently to be identified is a factual question. Right. And uh, indigenous people, often they, they know where the herd of caribou is, and a Westerner can't right. uh, understand how they know it. Well, white aliens can say they prehend it, and and we are completely open to parapsychology. Without, it, in other words, it, a white alien perspective enables you to be open to empirical facts. Now there might be some claims of it. I mean, the, the <coughs> mm-hmm. on commitment to Whitehead. There are particular places where I don't agree with him. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not that I. Yeah, right, no. Understood. But yeah. I simply. I think he has a contribution to make to renewing a holistic view of things mm-hmm. that is congenial to. Indigenous thinking that can bring the best of Eastern and Western thought together, and that overcomes the multiple dualisms that handicap. Now, some there may be someone else who does all that. Then that's just as good. I'm not. Uh, but I haven't come across that other person. And I know because I think it's so important that what that's, one speaks in a way that is consistent with and actually illuminative of what science has taught us. Now that's not with the scientific worldview, which I think is terribly outdated and all of that. And I simply will never know enough science to be able right. to be an independent thinker in this respect. The biggest issue among those of us in the process community 
uh, is Whitehead tends, and I, I think this is his view. Every, I mean, there are some passages that give, make me think no, but I think there are more passages that make it clear yes. Uh, he thinks that the actual entities, apart from animal experiences, in other words, the experiences that are pos made possible by central nervous systems, uh, that all the actual entities are minuscule. In other words, it's the quarks and the quanta and so forth. Now, I learned process thought myself from Charles Hartzman, and although I have over the years come to the conclusion that Whitehead, Whitehead is a much more comprehensive and adequate system than what Hartshorn had developed and then adopted from Whitehead. Hartshorn thought that we had actual occasions of experience at uh, many levels of organization. So yes, there would be quark experiences, but there would also be atomic experiences, and there would be molecular experiences, there would be secular experience, cellular experience. Where does it end? Where does it end? Yeah. Uh, well, probably the nothing between the cellular experience and the human experience, and these unified experience. And but it has to be attached to something physical there, obviously. Um, oh no! Now, now that is a somewhat. It's a somewhat different question. Okay. Uh, Whitehead thought that the, the question of whether there are human-like experiences after the body has died is an empirical question. But these experiences would not be attached to a body. So he wasn't metaphysically excluding that possibility. But... Uh, with both Whitehead and Hartson, we're primarily talking about the world that we study also in science. And arguing that the scientific understanding of a cell, which is simply of its constituents in some kind of unity, will never be quite adequate because, in fact, the cell also is an individual, and an individual has self-determination and is not simply the product of its past. <clears throat> and I think there's all kinds of reasons to think that cells have emotions. In fact, um, Cells can you can measure changes in the behavior of a leaf if in its presence another leaf is being burned or something like hmm. that. And this is where I would say <clears throat> that that speaks to the leaf's or the cell's awareness of right. I mean, it, 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 there is there is a reaction there. Yes. There's a reaction. Oh yes. And so this is where I am, where, which you don't like what I'm doing, where I say I there's something... I don't some... like you in introducing the word conscious. conscious. Right. 
Right. So so and this and this is the kind of feedback that I, that I want uh-huh. because because I don't have to just say I don't have to lump everything into consciousness. Um, I might, but but I don't want to off put or water or seem like it's watered down. Just ju- just to show that there is certainly an effect that 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 on, on whatever level there's think, an awareness. That's I think the cells in the I think the cells in the leaf have an emotional life which is affected by what happens to other cells in there. But do we now and excuse me if if you you've already said this and it just wasn't clear to me before. Don't worry about that. Thanks. Um but do we need some sort of awareness or consciousness to have an emotion? I mean, we do kind of, right? Or not we, not we, but a cell. Or, it need, there, there clearly needs to be a, a connection to everything that, in order to have. There needs to be a prehension. But I think that there are lots of emotions that are not conscious and that sure. nobody sure, is sure. conscious of. Yeah, right. That, that still affect them from existing. Yeah, yeah. But 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 even there, you could say that they still influence. Obviously, yeah, oh, of course. Oh. So it still plays a part in our in our larger Absolutely. awareness of whatever, right? It plays a part in our awareness, but if there weren't any human beings, it would still play a part. If sure, goes on. sure. And you understand that I'm not saying that there need to be human beings in order for the universe to to exist. I'm, I'm okay. saying that that something needs to prehend the universe. Um, I think that something that or, is that is not a prehension and is not prehended does not exist. <laughs> And I think right there is the <laughs> undisputable proof of that word that I'm trying to stay away from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. If you could just say feeling instead yeah. of consciousness, then okay. then we could be on the same page. Sure. And and, and right. again, now you understand saying that physical objects have feelings. I mean, you know, animals and other things have feelings is offensive to. Many scientists. The Cartesian sort of model of... But um, not nearly as offensive as as saying they are conscious. Hmm. And why is it offensive? Well, because they are still socialized into Cartesian thinking. Yeah, right. But, uh, you know, if you ask them, you really don't think that if you torture a dog... I it's see, I see, yeah. Because well, that, that puts them on the defensive. And, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. And, and then... I understand. Then, yeah. But if I say a unicellular organism also has feelings, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You, you know what I mean. You know? Yeah. But yeah. they won't, they can't, I mean, most of them can't really defend the Cartesian view of nature in an absolute way. How could, how could you now, ever, how could you ever... Now, now right? what, what they are most committed to and what Descartes cared most about is excluding purpose. But there's lots of evidence that animal purpose has played a role in evolution. It's, uh, it's just sad to see otherwise intelligent people socialized into things that can't possibly be true. And when you say purpose, I mean, are you talking about like a grand purpose? No, or, no I'm yeah, just, just what I'm I write. I'm just saying, uh, well, uh, 
most most biologists would agree that birds sometimes learn to get worms out of holes, mm -hmm. which is something that that particular species of bird had not previously done. Okay, that's evolution, right? I mean, that's creativity uh, and. But, but I mean, in general, the evolutionary view, as they will repeat again and again, even though it's by no means adequate. But That's something that happens on a genetic level. Irritated by mm -hmm. that, there are random genetic mutations, right. and some of them are beneficial, and then so, nature yeah. selects yeah. for the beneficial ones, and so forth. So they want to see random genetic mutations don't introduce purpose. Sure. But animal behavior may not introduce purpose because you can explain the animal behavior Animalistic. as having been generated. But I'm trying to give an example of where it's very difficult to make that argument. You could say one bird is just engaged in exploratory behavior which can be regarded as instinctive and not purposeful, and just happens to get a worm and eat it. Okay. But the fact that other birds observing this pick up needles and uh, copy it, that's not exploratory behavior anymore. It's overwhelmingly obvious that they are behaving purposefully. Sure. They want to get a word. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. so and if, you, if I just say that many uh, evolutionists would say, oh, yes, of course, but the, the next time they are asked to explain how evolution takes place, no reference to animal purposes. Uh, we also worked with Lynn Margulis, Lynn Margulis is a biologist who focused attention upon bacteria. Oh, you've spoken to me about her before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forget in what content, but I. But yes, now that yes. you, yeah. Okay. Well, she uh, developed the theory that unicellular organisms. And eukaryotic cells is, is what I really want to talk about. Eukaryotic cells is what our bodies are made of. Okay. That they d developed by one bacterium swallowing but not digesting another one. Right, and and the, and she's the one woman who is being totally shunned because people don't because that's want, yeah because that's, right, that's, right. That's, I, now I remember now I remember. not the yeah. way evolution yeah, yeah, takes right. place uh -huh. yes but nevertheless yeah. she developed so right. much evidence uh -huh. that now no one can deny it well you would think at that point that those who now announce the theory of mm -hmm. the scientific theory mm -hmm. of evolution would say well. Much of evolution takes place by the way they've been saying, but there are things that take place because of the behavior of bacteria or animals or something like that. No, they just I can't say that. Will not change the theory just because there are facts that don't fit it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wouldn't be so irritated except scientists are so arrogant about Uh their empirical, you know. They don't believe anything that can't be demonstrated. Except they will only believe things that can be demonstrated if they fit their metaphysics. (laughs) (laughs) They're the most dogmatic people. Uh Uh (laughs) I don't know religious people who are as dogmatic as scientists are. I don't know them, I'm not saying they don't exist. But they are so arrogant in relationship to religion. <laughs> they are, you know, and the, the greatest crime of Christianity is that the scientists at the court of the Pope would not look through the, the, micro, the telescopes. Okay. But there are so many things scientists will not examine because they are afraid. <laughs> the evidence for parapsychological phenomena is enormous. But most scientists don't sure. want sure. don't want to look at it. I mean they, they should be able to understand that this is a, a human problem, that we are all it, the, the, the best scientists of the time were Aristotelians. Aristotle was the best scientist of ancient times and the church was trying to ally itself and so at the court of the Pope he had Aristotelian scientists and they believed that the heavenly bodies had a perfection that the earthly ones, things on the earth don't have and uh, Galileo wanted them to look and see that the heavenly bodies have the same limitations as earthly bodies, well that would undercut their metaphysics. And they declined to look. Okay, that's not the fault of Christianity. (laughs) Christianity (laughs) has no stake in in the nature of the moon and the sun in that scientific sense. It just shows the habit of scientists that these these scientists are illustrating just as much as <laughs> if they would just recognize that I wouldn't be critical. I mean, I would say, okay, no, we're all creatures who don't want our basic beliefs disturbed, and uh, that kind of defense is probably very sociologically and culturally important, you know, but confess it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, the the thing about, I think, so many scientists, um, or science in general, is that um, they think that they have the objective uh, flank, right, Is is that they uh, they are dealing with objectivity and that there's there's nothing else to be said um, when of course they're simply doing this manner of the business of science through very human very limited capacities mm-hmm. um, and, if, and and we do things based on well our past models right which well, all of which are flawed yeah. And of course, they've been brilliantly successful. Absolutely, we always need Absolutely. to make it clear we are not questioning no. that Cartesian no, no, no. view of nature opened the door to very 
remarkable achievements. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, mm-hmm. they don't they don't have uh, carte blanche on on objectivity. No. It's so contemptuous of metaphysics and so totally committed to it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but that's the best way to be sure your metaphysics will never be examined, just to announce there ain't no such thing. <laughs> you can't criticize my metaphysics. I don't have metaphysics. <laughs> Well, as you know, I can get started on quite a few topics that indicate I'm not totally satisfied with them. <laughs> I think we've touched on a, a good many here uh, today, and I've gotten a lot of clarity uh, on that, because this, you know, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a question, um, but I think it's an important one, because again, I do believe that it goes right back to um, being able to, to definitively say that you can't have anything without, without God. Mm-hmm. As long as we also say you can't have anything without creativity or being itself or whatever you want to say. But, and I think um, that's all wrapped into... You can't have anything without an actual world. Mm-hmm. Right, because if you don't yeah, have... I, I really like that passage in writing. There are other places where he seems to be very much a subordinationist. He calls God a creature of creativity hmm. and even an accident of creativity. So creativity was the prehension of God? No, 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 no. You and I are accidents of creativity. I see. We are actualizations of creativity. And um, so, if God is a creature of of creativity, but in, you see that that is very subordinationist, and in the great n- n- num- great majority of traditions, east and west, people who have become interested in being itself or nothingness or or whatever tend to be, and, but who still affirm some kind of something like God, okay? They're subordinationists. Uh, Meister Eckhart was. Uh, he could speak of Godhead and God, mm-hmm. but clearly Godhead was the ultimate and God was a, an expression of Godhead. Um, in Japan, in debates between Pure Land and uh, Zen, um, not only do Zen view the Pure Land understanding of Amida, or of uh, <clears throat> the vow, as um, a kind of second level of reality, but many of the Pure Land folks kind of admit it. Now I found that there were some, well my my special friend in Japan is a leading thinker of Western Shin Buddhism and he's very emphatic 
that there's no subordination and comes out from that Buddhist context very similar to what I do what in this particular passage why they did there is no no Dhammakaya without Sambhogakaya and no no Sambhogakaya without Dhammakaya so they're totally totally on the same level of importance Mm -hmm. in other ways different and Religiously, of course, the Pure Land folks think that the Sambhogakaya is more important for their salvation than the Dharmakaya. But for the Zen, it's realizing that you are nothing but a form of the Dharmakaya that provides the release and transformation of the psyche. But for Pure Land, it's the recognition that this is all a gift very much like Christianity. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think in India we do have some theists alongside of those who put the emphasis upon Brahman, Brahman and Ishvara. But the overall sense is that Brahman is really it, and Ishvara is a kind of concession to people who don't. There are Indians who will not accept that subordination. But the the pressure in that direction is considerable. And the fact that Christians who supposedly believe in the God who is the father of Jesus will um, Will, will, once they discover the Godhead in Meister Eckhart's sense, will kind of trivialize the, the personal God. From my point of view, that's too bad. That's, I think the heart of Christianity is a loving relationship, and having a loving relationship with being itself is beyond me. Just because it's there's no nothing personal to being, attach. Being itself doesn't love. Right. It's, it's just completely a form. neutral right. yeah. with respect to what form. Mm-hmm. So to love it is is rather strange, and that to say that it loves us is even stranger. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But this is where we stumble into the conversation about so then what is God, what are the attributes of God and what is yeah, what are the attributes uh, of, mm-hmm. of definite attributes of God in the in Christian theology sure and many of the ones yeah. in later theology are just wrong <laughs> <laughs> the biblical God is not omnipotent and yet at a very early point you want it to attribute to God the kind of power an emperor has and just say only God has more of it. But that's nothing to do with the message of Jesus or Paul. Right. But, it's, uh, but I can't say it's nothing to do with Christianity because many, many people take the doctrine of omnipotence as a central part of their understanding. I was so glad when I discovered 
that there isn't any teaching of omnipotence in the Bible. There is in the English, in the Latin translation. You see. I'm not sure I would have told you that, because um, okay. again, it's in the it's in the translations. Okay. The Vulgate. You see, there are two proper names for God. One of them is Yahweh, and the other one is. So Elohim? Shakai. Shakai. Yeah. No, Elohim is a kind of well, that's I I wouldn't call that a proper a proper name. I think that's more a name for uh, of deity in general, yeah. <clears throat> but Shakai is uh, a proper name. And um Jerome translated Yahweh, which is the other one, of course, as Lord, I think that's fine. But he didn't once, I mean, he was such a sensitive translator that he did not want to obscure the fact that he was translating a different world. And so he replaced Shakai by Omnipotent. Hmm. So he introduced the word, the Latin word omnipotent into the Bible. And that has gone into all the translations Interesting. in the West. So it shows how Christians were thinking by the time of Jerome. Right. And from my point of view, that was a terrible loss. And... The doctrine of God's power became far more central than the doctrine of God's love. And one tried to figure out how you could claim that an all-powerful God is a God of love when God is doing all of these things. So instead of rethinking power by love, and love has a certain kind of power, parental unconditional love of a child is a very important factor in that child's healthy growth. So you can't say that there's no power in love, but the power of love is so different from the power of coercion. Incidentally, uh, one of our family who belongs to a, a more conservative branch of Protestantism has recently been writing about the Uncontrolling Love of God, and it's the name of a book. And he's, he had, his book um, was top seller among religious books for some time. I mean, it's, it's been quite a successful thing. And it's a far better label for what we are interested in theology than process theology far more successful. So I'm certainly not against it. (laughs) Tom Ord is his name. Okay. What's the book? The Uncontrolling Love of God. The Uncontrolling Love of God. He's now sort of building on that. He got 40 people or something to write pieces related to it and he's published that. (coughs) He has um, lost his job 
as a professor in, in the Nazarene school because he's too liberal. Mm. So I think he's going to try to make a living out of publishing and organizing and so forth okay. around this. Okay. He'll be here in January. The the most promising community for the development of a process type theology is the evangelical community in its progressive wing. I mean, there are a lot of people who are brought up in the evangelical world and are deeply shaped by it. And the, the communities they've lived in are very important to them. But as they just think for themselves, they find out that they have been told to believe certain things and they're not even sure they're in the Bible. As, as this one. And so there's a, there, there is a, a genuine theological interest in finding more adequate ways to think. And the tradition of open theology has been the major development but the evangelical open theology has been in agreement with process theology on almost all the central points. And I would have thought that it would be the exact opposite, right? With yeah. evan evangelists, I mean, being so closely related to exactly the what was written, right? The exact word. But, but the point is, Process theology is much closer to what is actually written in the Bible than conservative orthodoxy. Okay. One fundamentalist who had gained some following as a fundamentalist mm -hmm. decided maybe he'd better see if the Bible supports what he was saying, and he discovered it did not. And so his writings gradually changed and he became the leader of open theology. Okay. We've always thought we were closer to the Bible than the people we were criticizing. But <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think we are. How interesting. They, uh, I mean, all of these honest things are not really in the, the Bible, does it? teach omni this and omni that. Because I have no objection to some of the omnis. That Omnibenevolent, mm -hmm. I like. Omnibenevolence. And I don't mind omniscience as long as we make a distinction, and I think it's biblical. We need to distinguish between facts, what has happened, and we can say God knows everything that... Because it's a part of all experience. But... but uh, the future is genuinely undetermined, and God knows that it is undetermined. But omniscience had come to mean knowing everything that's ever going to happen. That, that doesn't really fit the biblical pattern. So yeah. these are the kinds of adjustments that this man sure. made, and he called it open theology.
And uh, the one doctrine he could not give up was omnipotence. And I talked to him and I said, you know it's not in the Bible. Yes, I know, but it's so deep in the tradition. Well, fundamentalists are not supposed to be committed to the tradition. But... So he was, in a way, confessing that. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the uncontrolling love of God is a direct attack on, on the notion that God controls everything that happens. So I have more hope for the future of process theology among evangelicals than I do among liberals, because liberals have given up on theology. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, uh, it is not a real popular trend in academia. Nor as we are, nor as we are seeing, unfortunately, is well, it just something academia, that... In academia, of course, theology just doesn't belong. It just doesn't, right. Mm-hmm. But but I think liberalism is is becoming so informed by the university. Liberal uh, to be li- a liberal Christian in the nineteenth century and the twentieth century was to a large extent to adapt your Christian faith to what the best thinking of the time was, mm-hmm. and for the most part. The best thinking of the time is defined of what, defined by what was taught, in the best universities, yeah. and that leads you to total nihilism. So it is hard to see sure. how. But I had a call from a woman today. It was you, you. And she has, uh, for years, she she's black, and she thinks that black churches do a better job in their liturgy and uh, structuring of this, of what they do when they're together. But quite independently of that, I mean, she she doesn't push the black part of it. Mm-hmm. But she thinks that she can teach church leaders to create a, a kind of activity when people are together that is deeply significant to the people who are together. And she calls her program Love Beyond Belief. And she called, but I've been very discouraged, as I think she has, that although she has been a consultant in a number of places and I think done a good job and so forth. It hasn't been, it's been so marginal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really give her a good living and it doesn't accomplish much. But she, when she called today, she was really high because she'd had a week or 10 days with a group of Unitarian churches, I believe she said in Oklahoma, but I'm not sure. And she said, everything I've ever been claiming for this method proved itself. And the people there are just wildly enthusiastic about what she's done. Well, 
I think that if you give up on theology, you might not give up on love. And I think basically that's what she is. She is focusing on. Now, I think to focus on love without some theological grounding may make it difficult to sustain it. But anyway, I'm just impressed that the UUs would discover love and have a first century experience of the spirit. <laughs> you know who I mean by UUs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, I better send you home. I okay. go to bed at this time. It's nine nine o'clock. Yeah, I've I've still got to get to the store. Also, I usually on Sundays usually uh, I clean the house and uh, and go shopping or you know just get ready for the week. And I have not done the latter yet in anticipation of of us talk. Thank thanks for making the time for me today. Oh. I didn't expect for it to be such a lengthy uh, uh, experience, but I I don't know why because we normally talk for quite some time. But I, I just I just thought. We'll hammer this one out. But there's a lot to, to discuss, obviously. So, If you don't leave, then. You <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think this is the first time I've had to kick you out. Um, maybe. <laughs> you Well, you have stuff to, you know, do and whatnot. Often, so. Um, and now you said, 